please pray with me. <coughs> Lord Jesus, each of us here wants to be ready for you when you come. We thank you for the gift of uh, prophets and teachers who have shown us how to prepare and be ready. And I pray that we would listen to them this morning. We pray that you would help us to be ready in heart and mind for your coming. Lord, you've warned us in your word that some will not be ready. That five of the virgins did not have the oil they needed when the master came. Lord, please, with none of us here, be among them. We ask it in your powerful and precious name. Amen. All right, so several years ago, when I was living in England, um, I remember driving behind a car that had a bumper sticker that said this. It said, Jesus is coming. Look busy. <laughs> Which I really enjoyed, because it's so very English, okay? We, we're generally a pretty lazy crowd over the pond in England, and we spend a good bit of time trying to look busy, trying to look busier than we are. And so as we think about Jesus coming back, perish the thought that he would come back and find us on a tea break. <laughs> now, Americans, you don't have that problem. Uh, you guys are always pretty busy. Um, so I wonder how you might finish a comedy bumper sticker like that. Jesus is coming, look what? Look happy? Look successful? Look generous? If Jesus is coming, what sort of face would you want to put on in order to look ready? Advent is the season when we think about getting ready for Jesus. Not just about looking ready, but about really being ready. And today, on the third Sunday of Advent, it marks the halfway point of Advent. We're halfway through. There's only two weeks left until Christmas. So over the past couple of weeks, we've been thinking about what it means for us to be ready for Jesus to come back. And we've been looking for help from the leaders in the Bible who got the people ready for Jesus to come the first time. So here we have our Advent candle stand and wreath. And uh, each candle represents someone in the Bible who helped the people of God get ready for their coming Messiah. So the shortest candle over here is the candle for the patriarchs. And that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they teach us to look forward to God coming as our father. God coming in relation to us as our father. Um, and as our father, he gives us our own country and our own place and shelter and protection and security. So as we look at the first candle, we see that to be ready, we need to repair our relationship with our father God. Then on the second week of Advent, we lit this candle for the patriarchs. No, sorry, for the prophets, number two. People like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel. And the prophets have lots of messages, but their prevailing message is to look to God coming as judge. Look to God coming as judge of the world. That God will bring justice. He will right wrongs. He will punish the guilty and protect the innocent. And he will accomplish peace on earth. That is a strong message in the prophets. And so as we think about being ready for God to come, the prophets teach us to be reconciled with our coming judge. 
And now on this third week of Advent, we lit this candle for John the Baptist. Um, and this morning we're going to think about what John has to teach us about being ready. The final candle next Sunday is the candle for Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now John the Baptist had such an important job when Jesus came the first time. I don't know how much you know about John, or honestly, how much you feel you really like him. <laughs> um, John the Baptist shows up at the beginning of all four of the Gospels, and he's this wild man out in the desert, in the wilderness by the Jordan River. And people are gathering around him to be baptized in the River Jordan. And John the Baptist can seem like a really a pretty strange guy. So I was at dinner with my family last week, and I asked my wife and children, if we can invite one person from the New Testament to come to dinner with us, other than Jesus, who would you want to invite? And I got pretty much the answers I expected. Jesus' mother, Mary, was the favorite choice, because she's such an impressive woman, and there's so much of her story that we haven't really heard. And then a pretty close second was Simon Peter, who always comes across as the sort of guy that would be exciting to know. You'd never know what he was going to say or do next. And then Benjamin really liked the idea of inviting Paul over. And I'm sure Benjamin would have a great time asking Paul all of his most difficult questions and finally getting satisfying answers. But no one at the table suggested John the Baptist. That, that would be pretty hard, right, to have John the Baptist over for dinner. He'd shed camel hair all over your couch. He'd ask you if you had any locusts in the pantry. And you'd be nervous about who he was going to call a brood of vipers. John the Baptist comes across as the kind of guy it would be difficult to get to know. But remember what Jesus said about him in our reading today. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. No one greater. Among those born of women, that includes Abraham and Moses and David and Daniel. Great, great men. And Jesus said there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So John was a very great man. We said before that John was a prophet. He's sometimes called the last of the Old Testament prophets because he spoke like them and he behaved like them and he clearly stands in that lineage of the Old Testament prophets. But as Jesus said today, John is a prophet and more than a prophet. John's more than a prophet because unlike any of the Old Testament prophets, John's ministry was also a fulfillment of prophecy itself, wasn't it? So John's life had been prophesied about. He was the messenger who would prepare the way in Malachi 3. And his was the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight in Isaiah 40. So John was a great man. He was a great man because he had been given a great role in God's kingdom, and he carried a great message. And John's message was really quite simple. It wasn't very complicated at all. John's message was that the time was now. The time had come. And when John came on the scene, within weeks of people hearing that message, Jesus would be with them. Their Messiah would be in their midst. 
So this morning, I want to just talk about two aspects of John's simple message that speak to us this Advent. And the first thing is that there are preparations to be made for the coming King. And the second thing is that the time to act is now. So first, there are preparations to be made for the King's coming. In all the Old Testament prophecies about John the Baptist, the key word is prepare. Prepare the way. And the core theme of John's message was to prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare for Jesus to come. And this message comes straight out of Isaiah chapter 40. And in that chapter that we read this morning, Isaiah fleshes out what it looks like to prepare the way. And Isaiah says this, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. And every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. So when Isaiah talks about the way of the Lord, he's thinking about a road, like a superhighway. Filling valleys and leveling mountains is a description of the massive construction effort that's needed if you want to build a flat, straight road. And it sounds a bit weird that all this building work is going on in the desert, in the wilderness, far from the big cities. But it's not when you realize what kind of road this is, that it's probably an image of building a king's highway for your king and his army returning victorious from war. So think about this. Imagine that it's springtime in about 600 BC, and so it's the time when kings go off to war. In English, the third month of our year is called March. Because for thousands of years, it was the season when the armies marched off to fight their enemies. And the word March derives from the same root as Mars, who's the Roman god of war. So imagine it's springtime, and so off goes the king to war. And he's gone for at least several months, if not years. And while he's away some sort of proxy king rules in his place. But then the glad news comes to your city, to your nation. The king has won, and he's coming home. So what that means is that a whole new territory belongs to us. A new land, a new people, excuse me, new resources. And so now the king is coming home in triumph. So the people make preparation for the king's return. They make preparation because it's a way to show him honor and loyalty and allegiance and to say, you are our king and you always have been. It tells him that we're his people and we care about his victory and we're sharing in his triumph. And in 600 BC, when Isaiah was writing, one thing countries might do to welcome home their king was to build a victory highway a highway home from the country that he'd just conquered. So they'd clear a path home into a wide, straight road for his army to march down in fine style. And what that meant, just like road building today, was cutting through hillsides, filling in holes, smoothing out the rough ground, which, as you can imagine, was a tremendous amount of hard work. So it communicated the people's devotion to their king and their joy in his great victory. Now, I don't know how long it's been since you last went out into the desert to build a highway, 
You've got me a long time. This sort of behaviour is a long way from our own experience, but we might bring it a bit closer to home if we think about the way that a modern city prepares to host the Olympic Games. So as soon as the Olympic Committee announces where it intends to host the next Games, that city starts to make its preparations. It knows that it has a firm deadline and lots to do. There are stadiums to build and security forces to enlist and an opening ceremony to plan. But even on top of all those things, the effects of hosting the Olympics are felt far and wide throughout the whole city. So for example, London was chosen to host the Olympic Games in 2012. And after that was announced, the city started to get itself together. <laughs> the subway trains were cleaned and reupholstered, and old graffiti was removed and brand new trains were introduced and the stations got a lick of paint. The temperamental signals that had fixed and flickered for decades were repaired and replaced. And the same was happening with the buses and the hotels. And the roads got a new layer of tarmac and bright new lines. The statues were cleaned of pigeon droppings. And the parks were tidied of rubbish. Because the Olympics were coming. And the world would be watching. The Olympics are a big deal, and the people want their city to look at its best. And I think that gives us something of a picture of what John was talking about. So John called Israel to prepare the way for King Jesus to come. And his call echoes down to us, to prepare the way for Jesus to come back. And for us, that doesn't mean literally building roads and painting hotels, but it does mean doing the same kind of work in our own lives, in ourselves, in our families, and in our communities. So as Handel wrote in Joy to the World, let every heart prepare him room. It's time to be our best selves. And I'm not just talking about appearances, like some version of Jesus is coming, look busy. And I'm not talking about trying to earn God's approval, as if we can cover over our sin and weakness with a coat of fresh paint. But I am saying the king is coming. And because we love him, because we're his, because he's shown us kindness, and because he's won a great victory on our behalf, what are we going to do to welcome him? To welcome him home to the kingdom that's rightfully his. The nations in Isaiah's day built roads in the desert for their kings to walk on. And our king is much greater than any of theirs. And our modern cities transform themselves because they're hosting the Olympic Games. And Jesus coming back is a much bigger deal than the Olympics. So what are we doing to prepare his way? What is the graffiti on the subway trains of our hearts? What are the potholes in the roads of our families? And what are the pigeon droppings all over our communities? We all have problems that we know about. We know they're there. They're no great surprise to us. We don't need anyone to tell us what they are. Just like London didn't need anyone to tell them how bad its subway trains looked. But here's the thing. Over time, if those things persist, maybe we get used to them. Maybe that's just the way things always look. Um, and we've lived with them so long that those things stop really bothering us. But a city that's about to host the Olympics notices that its subway trains are covered in graffiti. 
And in a similar way, a community that's getting ready to receive their king ought to notice some of the work that they need to do to get ready for his arrival. So, for example, that ugly bad habit is graffiti on your heart. It leads you into sin more often than not. It takes away your life and makes you crabby and disagreeable. You've lived with it there for a long time and you stop really noticing it. But the king is coming. Notice it again. It's time to scrub it off. And again, that festering unforgiveness is a pothole in your family. You've gotten used to swerving around it or taking a different route. You change the subject or you avoid that person altogether. But you know that pothole's there and the king is coming. So it's time to fill it in. And again, that spirit of independence in our community is pigeon droppings on our community. That attitude that says, I'm fine, I don't need you, and I don't want you to need me. I don't have time for your problems, and I won't let you have a voice in my life, especially not if your background is very different from mine. The king says, we are one family. We not only need each other, we're also responsible for each other. And now the king is coming. So it's time to clean those pigeon droppings off the statue. Those are just some ideas of what preparing the way of the Lord might look like. And we could all come up with many more. So maybe none of those ideas hit them up for you. But I challenge us that we know what Jesus would have us do to prepare for him to come. And if you think you really don't know, then I'm sure he'll tell you if you ask him. So that's the first thing John says, that there are preparations to be made for the king's coming. And now, second, the time to act is now. John the Baptist was a great man because he carried a great message. And his message was that the Messiah had come. He was a herald with great news. Or, another way to think about it, he was an air raid siren with an urgent warning. His central role was to say, the time is now. Act now, today, there won't be any more days. The people waited through 400 years of silence from God's prophets until John broke heaven's silence. He lifted up his voice to say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God! And barely had he spoken before Jesus was there with them in their midst. Now I don't know about you, but I need that kind of deadline in my life to make things happen. I need the power of today. And here's what I mean by that. The power of today is, to make, is the strength to finally do the right thing because the time to do it has come. It's that sense of deadline. It's now or never. Today is the day. So here's a trivial example. Sarah and I have realized, we realized a year or two into our marriage, uh, that we need to have people over to our house regularly just so that we're clean. Um, we both care about cleaning, uh, and we both much rather live in a clean house than a dirty one. Um, but somehow cleaning just never quite bubbles to the top of our priority list until we have guests coming over. And then all of a sudden, we realize they're coming today, and there's a burst of energy for the task of cleaning, and our house is transformed and the job gets done. And that's what I mean by the power of today. 
Here's another example. We bought our first house at the beginning of the summer, and after we bought it, there was a lot to do to make it home. And we did most of the essential parts of the work, and then we ran out of time and money and energy long before the job was finished, and we decided just to live with all the rest of it for a while. And now the progress continues at a glacial pace. Uh, when the stars align, and I develop the inclination to finally hang that towel wrap, <laughs> um, but whenever one of our sets of parents comes for a visit, the work takes another quantum leap forward. <laughs> a parental visit has the power to get a whole bathroom plugged in. <laughs> and that's the power of today. Queen Elizabeth II has been Queen of England for more than 64 years and has travelled up and down the country visiting every kind of house and in fulfilment of her state duties. And she once said this, she once remarked that wherever she goes in the country, the smell is the same. Everywhere smells of fresh paint. <laughs> so whatever kind of political power she may or may not have, she certainly wields the power of today. <laughs> and so did John the Baptist. People came from all over the region to be baptized by John because he said that the day to act was today. But here's the thing about John's ministry. It was a one-time deal. And it's not going to be repeated the second time. We don't get John coming back. We don't get a warning the second time Jesus comes. John's not planning a second trip. <coughs> On the contrary, Jesus promises that his return will be a surprise to everyone. So we're not going to get that benefit of the last minute air raid siren. The last minute announcement that today is the day. And that, I think, is why the early leaders of the church gave us Advent. Advent's an annual season of preparation. It's an annual month of today. Of course, all kinds of other preparations have come in to clutter up this precious season. Now we have to prepare a tree and prepare gifts and cards and prepare to travel and prepare parties and prepare big feasts. And all of those things are fine as long as they're helping us with the real internal preparation that's needed. As long as all those festivities are still pointing us to the truth that Jesus is coming, because he's really coming. And as long as they're merely accompaniments to the real work of preparing our hearts to receive our true king. And if we find that actually they're not, if we find that instead the busy work of Christmas has crowded out the holy preparation of Advent, then we should really get rid of all that busy work. We should ditch it in a hurry. Your house doesn't need a tree as much as your heart needs Jesus. Amen. Your friends don't need Christmas cards as much as your heart needs Jesus. Your children don't need presents as much as your heart needs to be ready for Jesus. And all those Christmas things feel like they really matter, even crushing us with the weight of their importance. But over history, over time, they only came in as traditions in the first place in order to help people get ready for Jesus. That was their role, to get ready for Jesus to come. And if they've stopped doing that, well, let's get rid of them. Because this season of Advent is full of the pregnant power of today. And it would be such a sad mistake 
for us to waste that power chasing the perfect Christmas present or the perfect Christmas day. Imagine this instead. Imagine that December 25th, 2016 is actually the day that Jesus is coming back. Imagine that it's been on his calendar for thousands of years, that that's the day he's coming. The world we know it then has two more weeks. What then will the next two weeks look like for you? Who are you going to call and connect with? Is there anything you need to confess? Who are you going to reconcile with? Who do you need to thank or encourage? Who do you want to share the gospel with? Is there anything Jesus has told you to do that you haven't done? And as you think about those things, there might be really nothing at all that you'd do differently if you knew the world had two more weeks. If you're confident in your relationship with God through Jesus, and if you've done the work he's given you to do, then you're ready. You've prepared the way of the Lord. But if something's occurred to you that you would do differently in the next two weeks, if you knew Jesus was really coming, then I urge you to do it. And not later, but now. And I don't mean quit your job and rush off and get married. But if something's broken in your life or relationships that you can mend in the next two weeks, then mend it. And if some task Jesus gave you can be finished in the next two weeks, then finish it. Treat December 25th as the deadline you need to get the job done. Use that power of today that we've been given in this season of Advent and take John the Baptist seriously. This Christmas will be a good Christmas if we've made our hearts ready for Jesus to come back. <coughs> and that's it. None of the rest of it matters. Jesus is coming, look busy, said the bumper sticker. John says, don't just look busy, get busy. But get busy with the work that really matters. And that's the work of preparing the way of the Lord. Amen.